Welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game and wants to know where Roy Hodgson's knighthood is. I'm Kevin Day and he's Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, I'm a big man, so congratulations on your victory against Man City, although not on the shameful touchline antics of your manager. Shocking, celebrating a goal like that, really. Well, I think he was so unused to it. Um, It took him by surprise as as well as it did uh, ourselves and young Mr Guardiola. Yes, I've, I've actually written to Pep Guardiola to commiserate with him and to explain what it's like to win at the Amex on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> As it turns out I'm not that big a man, Kieran. I couldn't, I <laughs> I couldn't just congratulate you. Um, later in the show, we will be hearing from David Webb, uh, an academy coach and scout at many clubs, including Crystal Palace. Uh, but first, uh, some news stories, Kieran. Um, and the first news story is that we have uh, a couple of actors in our garden, having dinner with Ali. So if you hear <laughs> if you hear loud acclamatory noise, it's it's coming from the actors. I can't I can't tell you who they are, but they are quite big names. And let me tell you, if you're au fait with both the front and back end of a panto horse, you'd be really impressed <laughs> by who we've got in our garden. Um, our first story involves some big hitters, Kieran. Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher, Rio Ferdinand and Gary Lineker are among several ex-players and journalists to launch a petition to create an independent regulator in football. It seems, Kieran, of all the changes being demanded after the Super League, the independent regulator is the one that's sticking to the wall most of all. Yes, and I, and I believe that this will be one of the topics that's going to be discussed uh, by Tracy Crouch in terms of the fans-led review. Uh, but it looks as if uh, the, these uh, ex-players, um, uh, in conjunction with many journalists, have uh, decided to move things forwards by setting up a, a formal petition. Uh, and my understanding, standing is it now has just over 140,000 signatories. Mm. So therefore, it has to be debated in Parliament. Uh, and that's due to take place on the 14th of June. Um, clearly, it would add to the credibility of the petition if uh, if more fans want to sign it you know it, it ultimately is a personal choice um I, I, there is there is a there is a map of the whole country to uh which, which shows the intensity of uh of signatories and uh, to no great surprise um the, the the highest proportion of fans in any one borough is in Stretford and Urmston right which, uh, which, given Mr. Neville's background and Rio Ferdinand, isn't hugely surprising. But also, sort of, you know, there's plenty of ma- major conurbations as well. <clears throat> um, so, uh, in terms of this issue of the independent regulator, I think it's potentially a step forward. It's something which we've suggested ourselves historically, mm. um, but it's not going to cure all of football's problems. Yeah, if it. If people think this is an easy fix and as a result of this, players' wages are going to come down, tickets are going to become cheaper and uh, you're going to have a more democratic distribution of wealth and trophies in, in the Premier League and elsewhere, um, that, that won't be the case. So um, it, it will, however, you know, hopefully give, give a voice to uh, those people who, who perhaps do feel somewhat marginalised. And by that, I'm I'm saying the fans. I read yesterday that that Partick Thistle's fans, ninety seven percent of them, have rejected the offer of a of a season ticket refund because wow. they're they're fans and they say yeah. You know, and we've always said if you can afford to do it and you want to do it, fantastic. If you can't, your personal circumstances, whatever they may be, or you just don't feel it's right, then you know nobody's to criticise. But yeah. The, you know, Ryanair, EasyJet, you know, the hotel chains, they would give their eye teeth for this level of people saying, no, no, mm. so we booked a flight or a hotel, yeah, you yeah, keep yeah. the money uh, because we want you to exist. So, so you know, that that is uh, an indication of the unique nature of uh, football fandom and just how important the game is to people. So um, I, I think it's potentially a good idea in my view, self-regulation has failed because we have three competing bodies in the EFL, yeah. the, the Premier League and the FA. Um, the, 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 the regulator, in theory, uh, yeah, we, we've got off what? We've got off gem, we've got off com. Presumably this will be off foot. 
um, will be yeah. able to in the, uh, the theatre we have off stage. Oh, oh, oh right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we'll, we'll be able to have sanctions, um, and and hopefully we will have uh, you know more people's views taken into consideration, but. You know, the, the danger is that the person who gets appointed is part of the old boys network well, and on the back of lobbying from uh, you know, significant vested interests, actually everything becomes very much watered down. So, uh, yes, yes, I think this is, this is good potentially, but I, I would just have a, a voice of a slight caution. Um, it, it's not going to be a quick fix and uh, all the football's issues are not going to go away just because we have a regulator. What I've got two issues, Kieran. The first is that to get an independent regulator, i.e., one that doesn't belong to a football club or hasn't been involved in a football club, which inevitably will lead to problems, then you need somebody from outside the game, and I don't think that's going to help. And also, yeah. I don't quite understand what they're meant to regulate because as soon as the independent regulator says, "Do you know what, chaps? You're quite right. Ticket prices and wages are way too high. We need to bring those down." Then the, the top six clubs will say. Well, that's none of your business. You're not here to regulate that. And what you end up with is a glorified ombudsman. And basically, we've already got a football ombudsman that no one knows about. Yes, yeah, yeah, you're, you're entirely right. Um, and that's that's you know part of of my reservation. Um, I, I don't see how the uh, a regulator can get involved in terms of individual contracts of employment uh, or sponsorship. Uh, but you know, there is the opportunity to ensure that we don't end up with some of the debacles that we have seen over the course of the last six to nine months where vested interests have taken advantage of COVID to pursue their own interests in terms of trying to have a power grab of the game both domestically and on a European level. So uh, you know, if, if the regulator says, well, the first thing I'm going to do is to say that any club in England or Scotland who chooses to not compete for the the top four places in in the Premier League, for example, through through the UEFA competition, um, they automatically lose the right to play the game in the country. And, and I think that would uh, act as a further deterrent. And I do think that the clubs involved uh, are you know, pretty sanguine as to their, their recent behaviour. And, and there is certainly no desire for uh, Super League to, to to rear its ugly head again. But it would be nice to be, have that uh, sort of uh, with some form of regula- regulatory stick, as, as well as the, the reaction of fans that uh, that led to the collapse of, of recent events. Mm. <clears throat> Sorry, I was slightly distracted at the end there, Kieran. I just noticed that one of the actors has bought a guitar with him. Which is just <laughs> wrong behaviour. No, no wine, just a guitar. It's like really, who brings it? You, you can't beat Michael Row the boat ashore <laughs> in a Croydon, a Croydon it's, evening. Yeah, it's, as long as it's not stairway to heaven. Now, um, <laughs> one of Manchester United's biggest backers has criticised the club for inflicting, uh, and I quote, reputational damage in the wake of the Super League fiasco. Yes, um, this is uh, an investing company called Linzel Train, and it actually owns a quarter of the shares that are traded in the New York market. So it, it is the wow. biggest single non-Glazer shareholder of the club. Now, um, remember that the Glazers have the, the voting rights stitched up because there's yeah. two types of shares. Uh, the ones which the Glazer owns carry 10 votes each and, and Linzel Train and the other shareholders have only got one vote each. So 27% of the shares, but it actually carries through to a relatively small proportion of votes. Um but in the wake of Super League, and this investment uh, company also has shares in Celtic and Juve, um, they've had meetings with all three clubs um, with a view to just saying, you know, you, you need to be cautious about how you go forwards because um, you know, football is a big industry um, and it does have a big commercial footprint and, and you're damaging that. And there is no doubt that the Glazers uh, are a toxic brand. And and what we have seen over the course of the last uh, few days um, is is an expansion of the the Not A Penny More campaign. 
Yeah. Uh, now, now, you know, I think we when we spoke to people from Blackpool some time ago, that was the vehicle through which they tried to get rid of um, Owen Oyston. People don't know Owen Oyston, uh, former convicted rapist, um, and um, that that ultimately was successful, but it took took a hard hard approach. Mm. Um, what what not a penny more are doing, and I think this this to me is sort of good guerrilla tactics. It's non-violent direct action, so you get the interest, you get the sympathy, but you don't get the criticism uh, in terms of some of the events that have taken res- in respect of the, the protest directly at Old Trafford. So so what they're now doing. Is they're saying, well, you know, we've we've got these big sponsors of Manchester United, the likes of Adidas, Tag, Cola, Cadbury, AON, um, and uh, they their brands are being you know, all over the Manchester United website. So let let's start clicking on them because Google Ads uh, charges the the advertiser uh, ch- oh. charges the, the so. Um, and you've got to do this clever because you know there is anti-bot software and there is anti-abuse software. But remember, Manchester United have got over a billion fans worldwide. Mm. So the, the anti-bot software, if, if 10% of Manchester United fans just go say, right, well, we're going to click on the Adidas uh, website and we're not going to buy a thing. And that's going to cost Adidas a lot of money. Um, and why are we doing this? We're, we're doing this because we are dissatisfied with the response of the Glazer family. Uh, to our uh, dissatisfaction, um, and you know, to a certain extent, uh, yeah, this is sort of the democratization of of protest. Um, yet ultimately, potentially, the future of Manchester United is in the hands, or it isn't because those hands hold the mice um, of of the fan base itself. So, uh, th- this is an intriguing one. Um, it, you know, it, I, th- I think that the people behind it are quite savvy. Um, and uh, you know the, the brands are then going to turn around and say we're a bit cheesed off with this Manchester United. Yeah. Um, perhaps you need to up your game. It, it, it's funny how club owners seem to forget that if a club like Man United have got millions of fans all over the world, some of them are going to be quite clever and possibly as clever as you. So, but is this unusual? I mean, obviously uh, this investment company. I, I, I imagine worried more about their share price than the ethics of the situation. But is it unusual for a, a minority shareholding group to to criticise the the majority shareholding group like this? Um, it, it is in the sense of going public. I mean that, that there are there are communication lines that take place on a regular basis, but uh, by you know significant minority shareholders. Uh, yeah, that, that's all part of, of the role of the company to 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 keep in touch, communicate, and, and manage the shareholder base. But um, I think I think this went out in in sort of the monthly newsletter of Linzel Train to say. Yeah, we, we, we just like to say that you know, we, we're trying we're trying to be the good guys here, and uh, we're unhappy with the uh, behaviour uh, of, of the owners. Um, and and it's a shame because you know, Manchester United do do lots of good things, and we and we have said that. Uh, you know, I think they're giving subsidised travel. I think to the tune of two hundred pounds for everybody. Everybody yeah, that's yeah. going to Gdansk. Yeah. So, um, you know. But they they do some good stuff, but it will get uh, relatively small attention because yeah, this type of campaign does get uh, you know d- does go out on social media and, and generates a lot of awareness, and people think, well, it's not going to cost me much to to do it. You know, I'm, I'm so uh, you know Manchester United are going to face an unusual backlash potentially. What's the name of that Polish town again? Gdansk. Bless you. <laughs> I, for, I forgot. I forgot to do it on Sunday. You mentioned it on Sunday. You forgot that I was, I was really cross. Uh, um, well, I mean, talking of subsidised travel, there are two stories coming out of Man City. One of which is brilliant, and one of which couldn't be more symptomatic of the modern game. And they both involve fans to an extent, don't they? Yes. Uh, I mean, first of all, you know, the, the good news. Um, uh, Sheikh Mansour has said that uh, those Manchester City fans that are going to, to Porto for the Champions League final, um, the uh, the travel's on us. You know, yeah, and and yeah. you are being bussed in and bussed out. So, you know, it, it is going to be a, a short trip. So, uh, but all the same, it's, you know, that the prices are, are, are not cheap. 
Um, and uh, yeah, th- there is there is a good relationship between the owners um, and the fan base. Uh, mm. Yeah, because th- there is no doubt that uh, you know uh, the, the Abu Dhabi owners have uh, made a significant difference to to what we've seen on the pitch. Um, yeah, it doesn't guarantee them winning every single game, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the odd meaningless end of season game they struggle with. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, especially when a player is uh, shamefully, wrongfully sent off for, the, for no reason at all. Well, no, I, I believe the fans got him sent off. According to that's the that's the theory. Yeah, you know, the, the eight thousand people synchronized tutting um, <laughs> from, at the Amex. Yeah, that 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 put that put the pressure on Stuart Atwell. I can assure I, you. I, I should think just the sound of eight thousand cappuccinos being put gently to the, on the floor. <laughs> would be it was oh, seriously. It was um, obviously. I didn't watch. Um, I switched. I switched. I'm so. I'm such a child. As soon as you equalised, I switched over. <laughs> <laughs> refuse to watch. Now I won't. I, that's why I don't often see match of the day because I won't watch it if the Palace if Palace have lost, and I won't watch it if Brighton have won. So oh, I'm the same. Well, except yeah. in reverse, of course. Yeah, yeah. But that's how it should be done. Of course it should. But I, it was absolutely fantastic uh, to see fans back in the ground. It really was. And in fact, I, I've, as you'll discover in the next question, I've I was in the pub this afternoon. And I've left the pub to come back and do this, and I'm going back to the pub before the game tonight. But um, I was there for the under twenty three game on Monday, so that was just just made such a difference, even eight thousand. Yeah. But um, anyway, enough of you beating Man City in a meaningless game. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's the uh, that that's the good news. Yeah, and, uh, and the- to, be, to be fair, Kieran, that's quite. I mean, we know we know he's he's as Rich Hall once described something. He's richer than gravity, but he's. <laughs> uh, that's still an ex- quite a sizable chunk of money they're paying out there. So that's a nice that's, that's a nice yeah. gesture. That is, a, and that's that's one that deserves credit. As as does Man United subsidising their fans' travel as well. Yeah, yeah. So so you know we, we always try to be as even handed yeah. as, as we can. But <laughs> but um, in addition, um, the the capacity of the Etihad is being decreased by around about a thousand. Um, and this is to allow Manchester City to install um, double height uh, LED screens for adverts. Right. So the front two to three rows, I think, of on three sides of the ground, which is effectively the three sides, which of course you'd see from a from a television gantry perspective. Yeah. Um, though those seats are going to disappear, and they're going to be replaced by these these double display. Um, uh, Advertising hoardings, which will be able to do the you know the izzy wizzy uh, adverts. Um, my uh, the, the the club have said that fans that sit in those seats will be relocated, um, even if they move to more expensive seats. There'll be no extra cost to them, so so that is a positive. My, my only concern is that um, you know if if perhaps you're of, of a certain age. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, going up to the if you end up in the gods, that that can be a bit of a problem. If you've got yeah, to go up three or four flights yeah, of stairs, yeah. so so that could be an issue. So I hope that is taken into consideration. Um, and also, um, you know, I'm sure this is exactly the same for you where, where you sit, Kevin. Um, you know the you know the ten or fifteen people that sit around yeah. your seat. You've yeah. got to know them over a number of years, even if you didn't know didn't know them originally. And you've got that relationship, and it's all part of the that social interaction that we have at football um, that you sort of build up you know new relationships and friendships. Course, yeah. And and I think that potentially could be lost. And and, and that is a non monetary issue. And I don't want to come across all you know too uh, you know too too nogget yogurt knitting about it but um it's part of the game no you, you and of course it is you're absolutely right i mean that, that, there was always an issue when stadiums became all seater that fans said well i like where i stand i like the people i stand with i i'm not you, I, I can't guarantee i like the people i sit with and so on but th- there's nothing like the friendship of people around you every fortnight during the winter who you wouldn't dream of seeing at any stage during the summer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> somebody, somebody a couple of seasons ago said, why don't we get together in the summer? There's a really awkward silence. It's like, no, we'll see you, see you for the yeah. first day. Yeah, but you do get to know them. You, you, you find out about their kids and their jobs, and it's you, you kind of look forward to seeing it. It's, again, it's one of those stories that it just shows you how things are changing and how mm. 
it's generally the fans that are at the, the bottom. It's just like we're we're moving a thousand of you so we can make more money from advertising. I don't know what Izzy Wizzy is, Kieran, but now you've mentioned it, I want to buy some, which is the power of <laughs> that's the power of advertising, isn't it? Um, <laughs> as I said, I, I was I was just recently in the pub, and I think I think there was some some news on this story uh, on one of the TVs in the background. Uh, England fans who had tickets for Euro twenty twenty are about or just have had some news from UEFA about this year's tournament, and that includes you, doesn't it? Um, well, yes. Uh, what happened uh, was that UEFA wrote to fans uh, some time ago and said, um, you've got the choice of either rolling your tickets over for a ballot or taking a refund. Um, and it now appears that that ballot is taking place um, because clearly the, the capacity at Wembley will be significantly curtailed yeah. um, due, due to COVID. Um, all fans understand that. All fans appreciate that. What grinds our gears is the fact that it now appears that hospitality packages are being offered, which guarantee you tickets. Oh. Um, and if you want to go and see England's three uh, Wembley uh, group games um, and the, the round of 16, which they might be in, which they might not be in, um, it's uh, it's going to cost you 7,200 quid. Holy mother, really? Ho- indeed, yes. Uh, so, um, and I think the, the feeling is, well, hold on, you know, if, if they're now effectively trying to resell these packages, why... Why are fans being told potentially that they're losing tickets? You know, yes. is, is it a switch to uh, you know the prawn sandwich brigade, and, and is that where UEFA's priorities lie? So, does this mean that people who bought tickets two years ago now, pretty much, mm. could possibly miss the game, and a, somebody who bowls up with a new sponsor, a new package, could actually pay that money and get a ticket? That that appears to be the case, which which is just intuitively. Wrong, uh, you know, and you know we've we, we've slagged off FIFA historically. We we gave absolute pelters to the uh, Super League uh, uh, gang, and UEFA sort of by by exception sort of became the good guys in football. But what have they done? Well, they've given us this monstrosity of um, these the Swiss model yeah. uh, for the Champions League, and the focus is on you know he he who pays the piper really. Uh, in terms of just trying to get as much money in as they can, I, I wish they'd start calling it Euro twenty twenty one as well. It's really yeah, it's really yes. confusing. Also, I'd, I'd I'd like to hear from uh, how many Scottish listeners about this because I my instinct is that if the a the Scottish football authorities wouldn't try and do that, and b there'd be a lot more protest in Scotland about it if they did. So that's something we'll keep an eye on. And we've mentioned in the past, Kieran, that every now and again, guy will pick a random team. And, for, <laughs> and just throw it into the mix for no apparent reason. Um, and this week's random team is Billy Ricky Town, who apparently <laughs> has made a profit of 1.1 million in 2019-20. But then there's a dot, 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 which is sometimes Guy's clever way of saying there may be more to this story than meets the eye. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm quite happy to talk about Billy Ricky because... You are. I, 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 know, <laughs> I know you are. I've got a pub to get back to. <laughs> Um, well, ma- mainly because I was a big fan of Ian Jury, and it reminds me of that's, Billy Ricky Dicky. Fair enough. Um, you can get rid of that now, by the way. Apparently, <laughs> penicillin is it? Yeah, yeah, it used to be yogurt. <laughs> I guarantee Martin Sir will mention that in his review of this pod. <laughs> so, so for people not familiar with Billy Ricky Town, um, they were acquired, I think it was in about 2016, Mm. by a gentleman called Glenn Tamplin, who um, was successful in his own line of business, decided to to buy a football club, and he signed Paul Koncheski, Jamie O'Hara, and and Jermaine Pennant. Um, Footballers, I think it's it's fair to say, were were not necessarily at the peak of their careers at the stage they were bought. And also had uh, had by that stage most of most of the time the references to them tended to be on the on the front pages of newspapers <laughs> rather than the back yeah. um, for uh, various nocturnal related activities, um, and that that didn't work. Uh, Billericay Town lost a lot of money um, on the back of that, and then 
Glenn Tamplin, I think he made himself manager and then sacked himself. You know, it, it's one of these fantastic tales, which, you know, it, it, it deserves its own documentary. Yeah. Um, and, and then he sold the club, which which was a cause for concern. And he went out and he, he, he bought Romford Football Club. And on day one, he sacked the manager, appointed himself manager again, and signed fifteen players. So you know, it's it's perfect lunacy. You know, if you think that uh, uh, you know Apple have got their their crazy football program, well, th- this is nothing on this. Yeah. Um, but Billericay Town published their accounts, and it looked as if they had actually made a million pounds in profit. And I was going, blimey, O'Reilly, you know, perhaps perhaps I've been harsh on them. Um, and then I thought, well, it's time to check the small print. Um, and, and it turns off, turns out, and fair play to him that uh, that Glenn Tamplin actually wrote off one point eight million pounds of loans when he left the club to actually leave it in in a slightly better uh, oh, okay. financial situation. So so you know, give him credit for that. Uh, uh, you know, he he's uh, he's always been very entertaining. Sadly, he's not been tweeting recently. Um, which, which is a shame because it, it was never dull following this account. <laughs> um, this final story, Kieran, I have um, I have a soft spot for Hibs. I'm happy to admit that. No one should ever support more than one team, but I do have a soft spot for Hibs. So this this story is really, really annoying. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Hibernian, um, and I'm. I've got. A, you know, I'm quite keen on Hibs because uh, mm. the Baroness is uh, is from Edinburgh. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, much, much to my chagrin, uh, yesterday before the match, she advised me that she'd just quit her job um, because, in her words, I've had enough of effing Microsoft Teams um, oh, trying okay. to. So, 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 so uh, but um, so, but she, so she chose I, to I, tell I, you that just before kickoff. If she'd, yes. waited, if she'd waited till the final whistle, you wouldn't have given the flying monkey. Oh, she, oh she... absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Leave, yeah, it? leave the job. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they've signed a strategic partnership with um, the uh, the side that beat Manchester City um, in, in, a, in a meaningless, <laughs> meaningless match um, at the Amex, according to some. Um, oh, I've, never, I've never known you so full of yourself. You really are bullish today, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, uh, it's 1989 since we last beat City in the league, so I've waited a long time. That's true. Fair point. Fair point. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, th- this uh, and I think this type of thing could take place on on a more regular basis going forward. Certainly, there have been some issues in terms of Scottish football. Uh, in in respect of potentially allowing Rangers and Celtic to put their Colts team into the fifth or sixth tier, and and that has provoked a reaction, some positive, yeah. some negative. Um, but the, the 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 potential benefits of uh, something of this nature uh, would be to allow clubs to have. You know, cl- closer communication to have uh, consistency in terms of uh, player development, uh, you know, pathways. Uh, so we'll have to see whether it's it's successful or not. It, it's it's certainly not on the scale of what we see at the City Football Group in the sense that you know that they don't have a shared ownership. Um, but it does look as if they're going to um, share ideas, and you know, I, I'm I'm all in favour of of communication because you know, that's that's what you do as a teacher, and you know you you find out what works and what doesn't. Yeah, it, it it seems a strange juxtaposition of clubs. I have to say, and at the risk of um, alienating those Scottish listeners that we love so much, would you expect the club from the English Premier League to be the senior partner in this? Would it would it have been their initiative? Do you think? Um, I, I, I don't think so. You know, pe- people meet up uh, at, at football conventions all the time, and, and and my understanding is that you know this discussion has has taken place at, at a variety of levels. So you know, Hibs have had a, a good season in, in the Scottish Premiership. They have, yeah, they, yeah. They'll, they'll be playing. Uh, they'll be playing in Europe next season. Yeah. So you know, I'm 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 not going to say that uh, you know, the, the English team would 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 be in in the you know in, in the dominant position here. Um, it's just a case of uh, you know getting together. You know, we we have seen Chelsea uh, have a relationship. Is it is it Royal Antwerp? Yeah. Um, yep. 
Um, so it looks as if clubs are, are are sort of tying up relationships as they go forwards, and it could it could result in cost savings. It, it could allow uh, you know uh, Hibs under nineteens to to play outside of Scotland because they can go and play Brighton's under nineteens. Mm. Um, just just to see what's working and what's not. Well, it, it, there are a lot of coffee bars and vegan pop up restaurants in Edinburgh, so it makes sort of <laughs> sense. Um, it's uh, it's interview time. Uh, David Webb has an impressive career in academy coaching and player recruitment for many clubs, including Spurs, Millwall, Southampton and Crystal Palace, where he was instrumental in discovering and guiding the career of a young Wilfred Zahar. We had a lovely chat with David just earlier today. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. David, thank you so much for joining us. I, I have to say, if I'd identified Wolf Zahar as a talent at that age and brought him through to a club, I probably would have taken the rest of my career off. You've done enough then, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, he's, um, he's, he's done fantastically well, hasn't he? So, you know, it's really pleasing to see him and you know, his family and progressing the way he's doing. So, yeah, he's... Uh, I think he's done. Uh, he's had a real, real good career so far, and uh, long may it continue for the Palace. Yeah. Also, it's interesting you mention his family because most people outside Palace don't realise how tough his his upbringing was and what you know the the part of Thornton Heath that he was brought up in is, is mm. you know there's not a lot of money there, and that that boy had to overcome some quite serious difficulties as a kid, didn't he, to become the player that he did? Yeah, absolutely. I mean. Um, for when I first see Will play, he played in the same team as my younger cousin. It was a team called White Horse Wanderers, um, yeah. and they played in a area called in uh, West Croydon. Um, and you know they're just a newly formed team. They didn't really have a lot of money. Um, they were playing in the C League at the Tandridge, I think. And yeah, um, yeah they, you know, some weeks I remember the team because I was at Crystal Palace at the time. I remember. My little cousin said to me, "Oh, you know, we didn't have we didn't have goals today, or we didn't have, um, you know, we didn't have no one had the right kit, or some players couldn't get to training on to, um, yeah. to the games on time because of you know someone had to pick them up, or so." And uh, he, he probably lived about three roads away from Wilf, and yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a great area to be sort of brought up in, but it was a it was a good grounding for him because. Um, you know, it was a tough area. It was, um, you know, it was quite tough on the family at times, um, financially and stuff. But you know, Will Will persevered, and he, I think that sort of mentality and that that attitude that he had as a as a very young player, he's taken that all the way forward. I mean, Wilf is worth a lot of money as a player. Have you ever yeah. wondered? Have you ever wondered how much value you've actually brought to clubs in terms of the players you've brought through? Have you ever added up in your head? 
how much some of the players, you know, people like Harry Winks and Deli Alley. When you had yeah. that up, when you had that up, you you you've made a lot of money for clubs, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, sort of put together something um, sort of most recently with, with you know with the help of, of someone close to your postcard, um, and I think it accumulated a sort of added value to clubs over my career of sort of around two hundred and five million, approx around that. Wow, that's brilliant. Do you do you still use the word scout? I was, I was looking at your. CV, David, which is very impressive, and I know yeah. it's at, South, at Southampton. You were you were called the fifteen to twenty one talent identification scout, but at Spurs, yeah. you, at Spurs, you were head of elite potential identification. Yeah. Essentially, is do you still refer to yourself as a scout though? Um, I think I think scouting is always going to be a big part of whatever role I do because it's something I just love doing. I love discovering yeah. new t- new talent. So whether my role as a sporting director or a similar role like that or something to do with recruitment, it's, I would always go and scout um, players when it comes to sort of making decisions of when we're going to sign them because that's the sort of part, that's the part of the role you know, I, I always love doing is just discovering new talent and see how they can progress and see if they you know, become successful in the team you're working for. You know, it's a big... It's a big challenge, but it's also you know it's also very exciting. And you know, you you spent time at Palace and at Spurs, as we know. Mm. Are, are there particular problems identifying and recruiting talent in London? So I know Steve Parrish, for example. The reason Palace have become a Category One club and spent a lot of money on their their mm. new training facilities is that he says you can't begin to compete in London unless you're offering those sort of facilities. Is, is that the case? Do you find? Um, I, I think uh, I think especially when I was uh, coaching at Crystal Palace at the time, Arsenal was the was the main team, and Chelsea sort of in the youth sections of sort of over sort of overtook them really, of sort of maybe cleaning up all the local London talent and getting the best and getting the best players. So even though Crystal Palace are very competitive and it's a great catchment area where they where they're based and what they can attract, but. Chelsea had the, you know, had the resources in terms of um, scouts and um, eyes on the ground. Um, they covered all bases of London. Um, you know, they were very, very heavily um, resourced. And yeah, and I think when you when you look at Chelsea, what they was achieving in the youth sections, and then you know the players, the players they had there. I think teams like Crystal Palace and Charlton and. Um, Millwall and teams like that were finding it hard to get players right on top of their own doorstep to actually sign for a local club when they could, you know, they could go to a yeah. Chelsea or an Arsenal or maybe even Fulham to a degree. That I think now having that category one status and um, also helps as well that Palace have had good success not only with Wilf with with Aaron and obviously they've got Tyreek Mitchell now. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think I think if players can see that um, pathway, especially at a Premiership club. They're more likely to, I think now, more likely to sort of take that route rather than sort of the badge, if you like, where maybe they see the opportunities not to, you know, not so forthcoming. So Palace are on the on the turn with that, but over the years, yeah, they it would have been sort of really really hard to compete against, um, you know, the Chelsea's and the Arsenal's of this world. Do you, do you approve of Chelsea having so many? young players on the books at any one time, so many of whom are never actually going to get to play for Chelsea. Yeah, they got, um, they've got an interesting model, Chelsea. Um, you know, they do like to recruit the best, the best talent and um, sort of recent times they've had some good sort of players with Loftus Cheek and Mason Mount and Reese James coming through and yeah. um, Gilmore as well, who they got from Rangers. Before that, they went for a lean spell where not many two players were coming through, but they had the model where their best talent was um, they have relationships with clubs in Europe and other Premier League clubs to get them out to try and you know to try and accelerate their progress if you like. So um, there was arguments for and against that model. Obviously, they're not getting the opportunity maybe at their own club, but they're getting first team football at other clubs. So. Um, at a club like Chelsea, where you can financially compete to buy the best players um, for, the, for your first team, you know opportunities do become really, really hard for the younger talent. So that's yeah. why they set up 
this um, system where you know they could have 20 to 25 players out on loan at various clubs across the UK and mainly Europe just to see where where these players could land and some have come through that that system players like Christensen you know he's playing regularly now for, for Chelsea so and some and some about to like Nathan Ake about to seek different routes but I've still you know they would Chelsea would still say ugly but they would produce a centre back for Man City so it's a uh, it's pros and I think there's pros and cons for that one. Yeah, before we talk specifically about some of the things you've done in your career, uh, you've got a master's in sports psychology. Does that sort of underpin everything you do in football? Do you use that knowledge and experience in just about everything you do as a as a coach and a recruiter <laughs> and a scout? Absolutely, yeah. It's always been um, sort of a keen a keen subject of mine because. Excuse me. Um, when I was sort of in the younger stages of my career, when I was looking to sort of progress onward, I was I could see the game probably back in two thousand and eight, nine, changing to more sports science and becoming a little bit more data led. And um, I was always fascinated with psychology and human behaviour and sociology side of things. You know, I wanted to find a way to combine that um, with football. And you know, I'd done my coaching badges, my license at the time. My academy manager's license, and there was, there wasn't at that particular time. There was, I was still finding things that I could look to to improve. And when I went to Germany um, to do my academy manager's license, I, I was did it by um, a, a, a Leverkusen where you had to do a study visit for sort of three four days to see how the club was run and um, see the business structures, the academy structures, and and how you know how a European club was was run compared to the English system. So. And and I never and I never really sort of realised the strength of that the psychology how much it was valued um, in football until until I went to Germany because they actually as part of my sort of part of my sort of study visit they got me to do scouting for their sort of an under sixteen tournament and yeah. and when I did um and when I did that for them. I didn't have no knowledge of the under-16 players in Germany at all, but I just wrote what I saw based on the day. And then I wrote, um, obviously, your normal observations, like the technical, the physical attributes, um, you know, some little bits of tactical. And then I started to go more in-depth about sort of the characteristic side of the game. And it was um, when I come back after that day of scouting, it was sort of Rudy Voller who said to me, he was the sporting director, he said, um, we've never seen... We've never seen this before, where an English an English scout or coach has gone so much in depth about the character, and they and they become wow. fascinated with it. So that sort of, um, sort of reinforced my knowledge to to really sort of use that as my as my niche, if you like. So when I come to sort of scouting or profiling players, that you know I've got that tool to add to an extra edge because you know for me it's um, it's a massive part of the game, which is still probably very much underused. So does, does you say it's a massive part of the game, and obviously football is getting more scientific now. Does that does that mean there's still any room left for sort of instinct or gut feeling, or you just you just look at a player and you suddenly think, well, never mind the stats. He just he just looks like he's got it. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, and and you know, I do like the the data side of things and the stats side of things. But for me, the data is there as a guide. It's there to sort of produce um, results on frequencies on the way you play or the way you're looking to recruit so it's there as a tool really and it's you know it can be a very powerful tool but you know that's only a small small cog when it comes to your decision making yeah. the actual seeing the player live over a period of time and getting to know sort of inside and out of his sort of his, you know the background side of him his social side so what's he like as a character and how is he going to integrate into the team you can see certain sort of character things on the pitch, how he plays that probably data, you know, can't um, can't show. So yeah. that's, uh, that's that's still a key skill because, especially for the managers that I've worked for, that they see the dressing rooms as you know quite sacred. And I've heard Guardiola speak about that recently. Yeah. So you know, it's still a it's still a massive part to play and to get those get those little extra character bits right. In terms, if you're going to pay sort of quite a lot of money for a player, well, for me, it's invaluable. And we've talked a lot on the pod. It's something we're both very concerned about: the way young players who don't make it are are treated by the club. Is is your knowledge mm. of is your knowledge of psychology something that helps you 
talk to young players who might be facing disappointment or despair about losing their career or potentially losing a, a contract. Yeah, it does. It helps in a lot of ways for um, players. It helps with um, when you're managing staff, and it just for me, it just gives me a better understanding of you know, you know, dealing with people, whether that comes to a decision with the players or a management decision or an everyday decision. I think it, it certainly helps to become more sort of socially for me to become more socially equipped, more socially aware. And you know, really sort of home in on my sort of social and leadership skills in 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 these environments, especially when you're in a role like a sporting director or yeah. similar. So, um, and again, with players, it's uh, with the way the game is now. You know, it's a it's a modern day world. It's a very social media led world, and and you have to move, even though you're keeping old fashioned values, which which are which I like to think I do still have to adapt to the modern trends of the world and understand sort of the players' world and their language if you want to have, you know, sort of various conversations with them. You you spent time in, in several countries. Mm. Tell us about your time in Sweden. You were with Ostersund's, uh, mm. Graham Potter's old club, who apparently is managing a team that beat Man City this week in a meaningless friendly, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing financially... Sweden wasn't just a, a different country; it was a different world, wasn't it? Just in terms of the money available. Yeah, and uh, I really enjoyed that experience because um, I had—I think it was about uh, maybe sort of seven, eight months or so since I've departed from Tottenham, and it was a chance. You know, I've always been fascinated by European culture and European football, and yeah. you know, Austin's had just come off the back of that feel-good season they had with Graham. They'd done fantastically well in Europe. They won the Swedish Cup, and you know it was a real romance story what he what he had achieved at the cup, bringing them up from sort of the real lower league. And uh, and my experience is when I went there, it it was like going back, it's like going back to basics in a way because the facilities obviously um, were very basic. But again, it was a very humble, it was a very humble club. The Swedish mentality was that no one is better than no one else. Mm-hmm. Um, the budgets in terms of what you could recruit players for and staff and what what I was used to working with, you know, it was um, like night and day. So it gave me a chance to sort of, you know, rediscover sort of, sort of some old values. And, and I enjoyed the challenge of sort of going back to how I first used to scout because a lot of it, there wasn't a lot of sort of data information. There wasn't a lot of um, resource. So again, it was sort of going back to... Um, Sort of old-fashioned scouting in a way, and doing and doing things um, that I probably did when I first started my career, and I really enjoyed that because sometimes it's good when you work, you know, when you work at a club like Tottenham, you've got unlimited resource, unlimited data, unlimited staff. Um, you know, you're, you're you're seen to compete on the, you know, in the, in various ways, Champions League, league titles. To go back to that, um, you know, I really enjoyed that experience. You mentioned earlier what Rudy Voller said to you, and I was interested to hear you say that you're fascinated by European culture. Do you find that the Europeans are surprised still when an English coach turns up to learn mm. from them? Because we still have this this sort of reputation of being quite insular, don't we? That we know we mm. know what's best. So, are they surprised when you when you turn up and you're happy to learn from them? Yeah, that that are to a degree because um, historically, if you look, there's not been too many English coaches that have you know gone abroad and and been successful. You can probably name sort of a handful um, that have done that <clears throat> and staff to a degree. So yeah, they've always. I mean, from my experience in Germany, they was they had it was quite it's quite interesting because they you know they viewed they had a view of. They found me my sort of subject knowledge because I was just completing my masters at the time of yeah. of that. Um, quite fascinating. They said this is very untypically English, and I was like, well, you know, my thinking was, what do you think of an English? And they typically four four two <laughs> rush yeah. this side of um, where <clears throat> at the time Germany were going through this massive transition of this golden generation where they wanted to win youth tournaments from under 15s all the way through to first team. So they was going through this real transition where back in 2008, 2009, there was probably still, there was probably a lot more advanced than England in terms of their progression. So it was, I suppose for me, I suppose I took it as a compliment that they, you know, they see me as forward thinking. 
it's, it's amazing. I mean, Germany had one bad World Cup, didn't they? And they just they just said right, what went wrong? Let's fix it. And it and it's something that we've never actually properly done in English football. But um, I've I've got a few friends who listen to this pod uh, every week, yeah. and I, they always ask me who the guest is going to be. And when I said that you were coming on, two of them said, "Can you ask him this question?" Because okay. and no one seems to know what what's the difference between a sporting director, a director of football. And while we're at it, let's throw in a head of football operations. Are, are these the same word for for the different words for the same role, or are they very different roles? Um, <clears throat> I think there's slight variations of them. So um, I think the sporting director's role has has evolved from from what it used to be. It's a very European structure. Yeah. Um, and so the European coaches and, and and again Germany were they're used to working in this mould. So a sporting director would be uh, would be to lead the strategic sort of process of the club, and that would be um, the head coach is there to rather than the manager would be there just to coach the first team and help bring and bring success on the pitch and develop players through. So that would be his role. Sporting director would oversee a number of sort of footballing departments, i.e., recruitment, academy transition to first team, medical, sports science, analytics. And would be that bridge between um, head coach and board level as well, but also driving the process. So, if the club had a sort of three, four year vision, and your job would be to have a coach in place that buys into the vision of the football club. Yeah. So, they wanted to play a certain identity, they wanted to play a certain brand of football, an attacking, transitional, safe, for example, type of football. Then you look at your coaches who could execute that for you. Uh, for your first team, um, if that coach moved on during a period of time, are you successful or it didn't work out, then your job is not only to recruit players, but also to recruit the next coach coming in to have sort of a coach of surveillance awareness of keeping that wheel turning. So the club keeps to its values, it keeps to its tradition, it keeps to the sort of certain style and the way of playing that, you know, when another coach can come in, that they can automatically just sort of fit into that into that system and to keep that sort of long-term planning of the football club going. So um, it's expanded on that. Um, some clubs will see it will have, will have like um, on a different title, we'll say for a technical director, they might have maybe just one or two departments. Some clubs will have maybe five or six departments. So essentially they cover the same, they'll always cover recruitment, they'll always cover the head coach, they'll always cover the long-term structure. But just in terms of leading different departments, that could be um, that could be under another umbrella. But that would be the main sort of that be the main process that what what a sporting director does. So it's the long term planning of the of the football club. Uh, two two questions before we go, uh, David. Uh, you worked at Southampton, at Millwall, at Palace, but I think fans of all three of those clubs would accept that the biggest club you've worked at is is Spurs. Yeah. And while you were at Spurs, you, not only did you help integrate Deli Ali and Harry Winks into the first team, you also played a part in identifying Son Heung Min as a mm. transfer target. When you when you watch Spurs on telly and you see those players wearing a white shirt, that must be an incredibly satisfying. Feeling because I, I mean Son Heung Min for start is probably one of the top three exciting players in the Premier League and Deli Ali hasn't played a lot of football for but for me he should be in the England squad and Harry Winks as well I mean it must be a, it must be a great feeling of satisfaction to know that you had a part in, in getting those players into the Premier League and into the first team at Spurs. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's, it's always nice when you see especially younger players like like Harry and Deli. Delhi came um, from Milton Keynes, and his expectations was he wanted to come straight into the first team. Where um, we actually bought Delhi, and the, the the initial plan was to right, okay, come from MK Dons into Tottenham. Let's look at his long term plan. Maybe he needs a loan to a Championship club. But yeah. Delhi had such a fantastic um, attitude and a. And a desire. He wanted to prove himself around the first team. So we, you know, we spoke with Maurizio and said, you know, we need to give him a good pre-season with, with yourself and and see how he progresses on there before we make any decisions. So, and he proved everyone right because Maurizio was saying, 
after two weeks, he's not going anywhere. He's staying oh, really? on first-team squad. So, wow. And Harry as well. We, you know, it was because we had such a good relationship with Maurizio and and uh, John McDermott, the academy manager. It was good to we. So sort of my role was to help sort of facilitate transition some of the academy players into first team. And Harry Winks was a player that Tottenham we felt that would fit really well into Maurizio's style of play and really take on sort of that deep learning curve as well. That you know, because Maurizio is an excellent coach and a teacher and you know an excellent person. So. He Harry Harry took to that sort of transition really well, and with Song, yeah, he's he was. I was so pleased for him because when he first came to Tottenham, he sort of struggled a little bit with in terms of the, you know transition into English football a little bit with the language and and the fans. You know, it took a little bit of time for him to settle in and the fans to get used to him. But yeah. what he did have was incredible resilience, incredible work ethic to continue to improve. Like, um, every day in training and continue to sort of learn and integrate himself within, you know, within the areas and the Tottenham team and the environment. And I think some players can, you know, when they get this challenge in front of them, can find it extremely difficult, where some players like Song can take the challenge on and really flourish. And yeah, it's very pleasing to see all three of them doing really well. Yeah. And you know what I particularly like about Deli Ali and Harry Winks as young players, as I've mm. met them both, is they're not big. They're not they're not big, stocky, chunky lads, and it, for me that was sort of proof positive that, mm. that we had a twenty year period in English football where if you weren't physically strong, and, yeah, and muscly, you weren't going to make it in the first team. And I think it's 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 so much better now when players with talent are are being brought through rather than just big, strong, athletic, box to box runners. Yeah, absolutely, and. And I think that's a testament to sort of how the game sort of evolved and maybe sort of some of the influence of sort of foreign coaches that have come in. And Maurizio was, you know, some of his key characteristics was he did like athletic players, but it didn't necessarily mean that they have to be sort of six foot four and, you know, really built, muscular built and heavy strong. So it was more the athleticism in terms of transitioning, sort of the technical and the character. You know, those those were the three things for him. He wasn't sort of depending on position, of course, but he wasn't, you know, he didn't have a preference on size as long as they sort of had those traits of high quality. That's, um, you know, that, that was enough. So it, it is good to see players come in and you can see the game changing into that as well, where that's coming back where you see some sort of lean, the leaner profile players like the Phil Fotons and the Deli Allies and the Harry Winks that can play at this level where, you know, they don't have to be, like you say, so... So, um, so muscularly built. Yeah, well, even even Tyreek at Palace as a as a left back, which traditionally yeah. meant to be a strong physical place, again, there's nothing of him. But Aaron Wambasaka the same. I've never seen two kids who can tackle better than they can because it's all about it's all about timing rather yeah. than about strength. Um, before we let you go, David, it's been really interesting to talk to you. What's what's next? Can you tell us what what's next for you? What your next job might be? Where you off to? Do you know? Um. It hasn't been sort of nailed down just yet. I can't really say oh. some of the clubs have been talking to for confidentiality reasons, but um, there were there were sort of two clubs in particular, um, one here, one in uh, one in Europe. So one based in the UK, one based in Europe. So it's just a case of being for here just to see when the season might finish um, and how it finishes for this particular team, and then the one in Europe sort of an ongoing conversation so for myself I hope to be sort of back in by the start or sort of at least sort of a week or two before pre-season somewhere Well that's brilliant whoever you go to you've obviously got a great deal of talent and enthusiasm and experience to bring to them so we wish you the very best of luck in your next job It's lovely to talk to you David thank you very much And you thank you guys It's it's interesting, Kira, isn't it? I asked him the question. It's it, it only takes one player to make the first team, and someone like David has earned his wages right there and more, hasn't he? Yes, yeah, and uh, you know, having a development pathway for players and, and giving them opportunities um, saves the club a fortune uh, in terms of a not having to recruit a player for that yeah. particular space. And B, they they can monetize it if if they so choose to to sell. And and we have seen other clubs in the Premier League um, often have 
30 or 40 players who are um up for you know up, up for sale or loan at any one point in time um and this this becomes an additional revenue stream which which helps the club to to go out and compete on a first team first team basis mm. even if these players themselves never meet uh, make make first team yeah. Uh, thanks to everyone who's become a patron of the pod via our Patreon site this week, including Mark Silverstein, Simon, Andy Gale, Tom Shelley, David May, Andrew Ross, Colin Wilson and James Wilson. If you'd like to make a small weekly contribution towards our Always Free to Air podcast, then go to patreon.com forward slash price of football. And if you have any questions at all for our next pod, which is Monday's questions one, any questions about the world of football finance it's questions at priceoffootball.com and as ever i shall hand you over to the cocker hoop over the moon <laughs> smile as big as an elephant no it's not as big as an elephant side that doesn't make sense uh, <laughs> very cheerful kieran Maguire, to say goodbye well th- thanks again folks for your feedback um if you're enjoying the show if you can uh uh, follow on the the Apple or the Spotify icon on your phones um, and give us a review. You know, just tell us what you think we're doing right. To give us wrong. Give us five stars. Uh, it, it does help producer guy. Uh, you know, we are trying to get a, as diverse a bunch of guests from different areas of the game as possible, and it and it just makes us. Uh, look, look probably a bit better than we are in reality, <laughs> but um, it, it's uh, it, it certainly helps us when we're talking to people in the game. Thank you. The price of football. Bye, son, for the